What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Joining us today is Dr. Robert Glover who is an internationally recognized authority on the nice guy syndrome and the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy. Dr. Glover is a frequent guest on radio talk shows and has been featured in numerous local and national publications. Through his book, online classes, workshops, podcasts, blogs, consultations, and therapy groups, Dr. Glover has helped change the lives of countless men and women around the world. As a result of his work, Dr. Glover has helped thousands of nice guys transform from being passive, resentful victims into empowered, integrated males. Along with these personal changes have come similar transformations in these men's professional careers and intimate relationships. Dr. Glover is the creator of Dating Essentials for Men and the director of TPI University. Dr. Glover, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Brendan. Man, that was the, that was the long bio. bio. Uh, good to be here with you. Absolutely. And thanks again for joining. What I would like to get started with is before we dig into what it means to be a nice guy and all the content of your book, I'm really curious about your upbringing, your personal life, and what may have led you to this path of uncovering a lot of this. Well, let's just start by a brief definition of a nice guy. And that, uh, a nice guy is a person, this, this applies to men and women both. There's nice, lots of nice girls out there too. But my, my, my work primarily focuses on men, cause, mainly because it started with my own personal recovery process. But a, a nice guy is somebody who doesn't believe he's just okay as he is. And he believes he has to either become what he thinks other people want him to be in order to be liked and loved and get his needs met. And hide anything about him that he think might get negative reactions from other people. Um, so basically a nice guy is often uh, somewhat of a chameleon trying to become what, other, what he thinks other people want them to, him to be and or hiding things about himself. Now in terms of, of my own personal uh, training to be a nice guy, um, probably number one, my natural temperament, inherited temperament is, is fairly easygoing. Uh, you know, I, my mother often tells, whenever I start dating a new woman or get involved with somebody, my mother will tell them, Bobby never did like conflict. And I'm thinking, yeah, who does? I mean, why would anybody like conflict? That's just my temperament. Um, and my mother is much the same way. I inherited much of my temperament from her. She is, you know, if you looked up codependent in the dictionary, you see my mother's picture. Um, and so, you know, she, she trained me to, to, to be also that passively pleasing uh, young man. Another piece of it was that my father was probably anything but a nice guy, uh, pretty narcissistic, self-absorbed, angry, critical, emotionally unpredictable. And, um, and I learned to walk on eggshells around him, try to please him, not rock that boat. And, and also made a conscious decision to try to not be like my father which is, is a fairly common dynamic for a lot of nice guys is, is an attempt to be different from their fathers and or different from men in general. And my mother, even as a child, told me she was raising me and my brother to be different from our father. Um, she later actually apologized for that. She says that that wasn't a very good thing to tell you or a very good parenting strategy to try to get you to be different than your dad. Um, and so kind of throw in my natural temperament, the training in my family, both from my mother of how to be a good codependent, trying to be different from my father. Probably two other factors really played into it was I, I grew up in a very fundamental Christian church. Um, and, you know, we're basically, there's that message, you know, be good, don't, don't be bad, and basically hide anything about you that people might judge or criticize. Um, I went to a Christian college. I have two degrees in religion. I'm no longer religious, but I was actually a, a minister. 
uh, for eight years in a, in a previous lifetime. So that played, I think, a lot into the whole nice guy, kind of be the meek and passive Jesus Christ kind of guy, um, even though probably he was anything but meek and passive. Um, and then one other factor that probably had a, a strong influence, especially coming during my adolescence and early adulthood, was the, the very angry radical feminism of the 60s and 70s when I was a teenager and young man of hearing messages from women about how terrible men were, you know, about the patriarchy, the abuses of men, uh, you know, slogans like, you know, a, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Uh, Gloria Steinem later said that married a very wealthy guy. Um, and, you know, things like uh, every man's a rapist and erection's a sign of aggression. So that all played into a lot of the conditioning and training that I already had. I don't want to be that guy. I, I, I want to be the good guy. I want to be the man that women approve of, that women think is, is a good guy rather than that bad guy that they all seem to, to be so angry at. So all of that, I think, was a, a pretty big package and maybe even throw in kind of the U.S. educational system, that I, I didn't have my first, you know, male teacher. I had one in elementary school, so it wasn't really till junior high that I was really even under the influence of very many men. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of men in Western culture, just going from third to fourth grade not only involves learning your reading, writing, and arithmetic, but it, it also involves learning, trying to learn how to please women because it, it, you're kind of dependent on a female teacher's approval, you know, to, to succeed. And just getting from third to fourth grade is what, you know, this is defines success, you know, for a seven, eight-year-old. So I think a, a lot of those factors and, and a lot of men I've talked with, really even around the world, um, you know, every, every person's story is different, but those are not uncommon dynamics for a lot of the men I work with. Um, both, you know, an easygoing temperament, trained in their family to be a nice guy, influenced many by religion, often very conservative religion, uh, influenced by the social dynamics of don't upset women, you know, be the good guy. So that's, that's kind of where, I, as far as I can tell, my earliest conditioning came from. Got it. And as you noticed your life in, say, your 20s and maybe 30s, how did being a nice guy play out in, in, in the negative consequences, for example, in intimate relationships and in friendships, in your career and your relationship with yourself? Um, that's a good question. And, and I, I start out the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, um, kind of uh, counterintuitively by talking about how nice guys often are not so nice. Now, being a nice guy actually, you know, can, can be very productive and helpful in life. I mean, it doesn't hurt to be able to get along with people and, and to be able to, you know, cooperate and, and, and treat people with kindness and respect. But the problem with the nice guy in doing these things, he has an agenda. And I call these in the book covert contracts. Yeah. Um, they're, they're giving to get. And we can dive more into those because they're pretty juicy. Yeah. Um, and it's these covert contracts and um, a, a basic lack of authentic self. I mean, if you're trying to become what you think other people want you to be and trying to hide certain things about yourself that you think might lead to rejection or, or negative consequences, um, you, you, there's no you there. There's no authentic you. There's no honest, um, integrated you that people can actually know and count on. Now, where it, it, I saw it playing out for me uh, and I didn't really see it playing out until I was in my 30s. And I, I got married right two days after I graduated from college, kind of in this Christian college, you were encouraged to get to get married, you know, to somebody you met there at college. Um, and I picked somebody that, you know, was a diamond in the rough, in which a lot of nice guys do that a lot in our intimate relationships, because we don't believe we can just be ourselves or that the, the, the people we desire would desire us just as we are. We, we, and because we tend to be problem solvers and fixers, we tend to attract people uh, who need some fixing or problem solving, or at least in our eyes, we perceive that. So it leads to a lot of codependent behavior. Um, it leads to a lot of dysfunctional relationships because if you're actually attracted to somebody because of their dysfunction and then your dysfunction is trying to fix it, um, that doesn't, work well in the long run. 
and probably many people have experienced that and you're nodding your head. So you know what I'm talking about. And, and I am a codependent in relationships. I, I go seeking approval, seeking validation. And, and I, and, and here's the paradox. And I, I've been a therapist for over 30 years. So here's a paradox of, of kind of the human condition. What, whatever we lacked as children or whatever, whatever made a major emotional impact on us, perhaps in a negative way, we often then in adulthood go seeking relationships, both personal and professional, that recreate that. So not only we can do what we learned to do, you know, to manage that as a child, but to also, and this sounds really crazy, you know, on the surface, but it's logical. We actually pick often the people and situations that are least likely to give us what we need and want because we actually have to pick the Mount Everest of our, you know, core issues in other people in order to conquer, climb the highest mountain, conquer it, and then prove to ourselves, okay, I really am lovable, or I really am competent, or I really am worthwhile. I mean, you know, this paradoxical thing for nice guys is often, you know, the people who like us just the way we are, they're boring to us. They're not a challenge. We got to go pick the challenges to prove, no, I really am lovable. I really am desirable. I really am competent. I really am worthwhile. So that, that really creates some real messes in relationship and, and, and personal and professional as well. Now, where it really played out for me, um, I, I was in my second marriage in my 30s. And, and my second marriage was the result of, of me just being codependent and toxic and becoming resentful and passive aggressive in my first marriage. That's how that one ended. And a couple of years into my second marriage, my, my second wife basically started commenting on the same behaviors, my passive aggressiveness, my, my uh, lack of honesty, uh, authentic, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't tell anything that I thought might upset her. Um, you know, if I went to lunch that day, you know, took, you know, had a lunch break from work and went and ate somewhere. I often wouldn't tell her because I didn't want a negative reaction. You went to lunch, you spent that money. You didn't tell me you didn't go with me, but you know, I saw all of that led to a lot of, of dishonesty all the while thinking I'm a good guy. I treat her well. I, you know, I treat her better than her ex. I'm raising her kids. And, you know, I put up with her mood swings and, you know, I put up with her criticism. I'm a nice guy. Mm. And about two years into the relationship, she said, I can't take your passive aggressiveness anymore. I go, what's that? Um, you know, I had a PhD in marriage and family <laughs> therapy. And I, what's passive aggressiveness? And, um, and she says, you got to go get some help. And, I, and so I actually, you know, w went to a 12-step group and then a therapist trying to find out why me being a nice guy didn't make my wife appreciate me more and treat me better and want to have sex with me and be kind to me. and um, Luckily, in that therapeutic process, I, I, I started learning some really good tools and really getting some, some really good insights into why this passively pleasing nice guy doesn't tend to work very well. I started learning about boundaries, started learning about being honest and authentic. I started learning about making my needs a priority and asking for what I wanted. I started you know, connecting with men and, and connecting with my masculine self. And, um, and that's where that transformation began for me. And as you started to uh, learn these concepts and implement them in your life, how did your second wife respond? Was she very happy about this or was it challenging her psychology and her system in some ways? And how did that play out? Both. Um, it was mixed. Um, my, my second wife, who I've been divorced from for about 17 years now, um, and we were married for about 14 years. So, so about 12 of that, you know, I began the recovery process about two years in. Now, she was actually a therapy junkie. Uh, she liked going to therapy. She liked doing workshops and programs. Um, but that never really actually changed much of her personal dynamics, um, which was like my father. She was moody, up and down, emotional, narcissistic, uh, self-centered. And th none of that changed over the time. Well, as a night, you know, Part of my nice guy recovery probably began was, oh, okay, I'll work on these things and then she'll change and then she'll treat me better. And I found out over time that didn't. I also found out that she seemed to have an emotional investment in not seeing me as having made 
any changes or improvement. It was like she needed to keep seeing me in, in a negative uh, spotlight. Right. And, and, and that was actually part of my own recovery was, was getting to a point of moving past needing her validation or, or her you know, sign of approval. Okay, you've been doing your work. I'm, I'm proud of you. Um, that, for example, as I started writing the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, while I was in that marriage, she was very supportive of me writing the book and really supportive of the message and the principles that I was teaching. But in all that time, she actually never read any of the manuscripts that I gave her that I was writing. They would sit on her nightstand for, forever. So it was mixed. And I finally reached a point um, after a period of time where I realized, okay, I, I am changing. I am evolving. I am, I am embracing me. I'm becoming the uh, authentic person. And it didn't seem to make her... Um, it didn't seem to make her be more loving or treat me better. And I reached a point of realizing, and this is, this is a core piece for a lot of nice guys. A lot of nice guys like me are terrible enders. We're not good at ending things in timely judicious ways. We stay way too long. We put up with way too much. We build up way too much resentments. We get way too passive aggressive. And then often we just do, we either just totally withdraw or we do something destructive in the relationship that kind of blows it up. And that's kind of my pattern is to just blow them up rather than ending them in a, in a, in a good, healthy way. And I just reached a point where I realized this isn't ever going to move any further than it is in terms of the relationship. And, and I actually made a very conscious, good decision to, to be an ender in that relationship. So that, that, you know, like I said, it had very mixed results. You know, she was supportive of the process, but at the same time denied that I was actually making any changes um, yeah. that, 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 that were significant. Interesting. Yeah. I'm curious to go into that bad enders concept in a little bit more detail. So for example, you're a nice guy, you're doing your work, you're improving and you have someone who clearly just doesn't accept you as they are. Maybe they're addicted. Maybe they're cheating on you. And so why are nice guys bad enders and what can they try to do differently to be more firm in their decisions and change that pattern? Okay. I, I've got kind of a few theories around the bad ender thing. Um, and some of them, well, I'll just throw a couple of them out. One of them is I, I don't think it's in our male DNA to be a good ender. Um, most of our human evolution occurred in a tribal setting where we were interdependent on each other. To be outside the tribe was a death sentence. Not only would you not be protected or provided for, um, you would have no protection or companionship, and you probably wouldn't pass on your DNA. You'd probably get you know, eaten by a tiger or, or whatever. And so to actually break up with somebody, and since we're talking about personal relationship, to break up with somebody, I think for the male psyche feels like we're giving a death sentence to the other person. Like we are casting them out to certain death. Now, this is my own theory about it. I actually think that's also why women tend to react so strongly when they get broken up with. I think it is in their DNA for it to feel like a death sentence. So I think there's part of it. It's just not natural for men to, to basically say and I know this is kind of old, old programming, but we're, I think we sell emotional programming to, to provide and protect. And all of a sudden, all right, I'm not going to be your provider and protector. And that's especially true with nice guys. It's where we get our validation. We give to get. I'm giving, I'm giving. And then if we don't have someone to give to, what, what's our value anymore as well? I think there's also a, a strong social construct. Um, I mean, there's a lot of double messages between the sexes, the genders, and, and culture. Um, some of them have become memes that we just accept, even though they're still very much a double standard. Um, but one of them is typically if a guy breaks up with a woman, he's, well, he's that asshole. He's the jerk. He, you know, he broke up with her. You know, what's his problem? But, you know, if a woman breaks up with a guy, it's often, well, she finally dumped that jerk, you know. Uh, it, it, there's really a very different social message around men that break up versus women that break up. And there's actually a social stigma for men to break up with a woman. And, and, and again, and maybe none of that's even true, but, but it's, it's, I, I think that's part of the theory. But then I think for, for nice guys, um, a lot of times we're just eternal optimists. 
we think, oh, you know, I'll, uh, not today. I'll give it one more day to get better. In my, in my second marriage, for at least the first seven, eight years, I kept giving it six more months to get better or I was going to leave. And, and, you know, that just kept rolling over. And, yeah. and I stayed 14 years. And, and, I, and I think because it is, it does raise our anxiety to break up. We don't tend to want anybody upset with us. We don't want anybody to think we're a bad man. We don't want anybody to react negatively. We avoid those things. So often we just put it off till another time. And, and I know for me, and I've worked with a lot of nice guys like this, you know, we'll, we'll live in a very unhappy state for years for whatever reason, either because we're religiously we don't think we should break up or there's kids involved or we've, we're entangled in too many ways with debts and houses and, and work relationships. Whatever the reason is, is that a lot of us will just stay way too long fantasizing about what it'd be like to, you know, to, to be on our own or to be with somebody else and just one more day and one more day and then one more day and one more day. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here's the, the, to me, the real paradox. My, my first two wives, I did not end well. I, I, I kind of blew the relationships up. And both of those women really didn't want anything to do with me for many years afterwards. Now, I've reconciled with both. You know, I, I, it's not like we chat or hang out with each, either of the women. But, you know, they don't, they don't hate me. Well, you know, we've resolved all that. But for years, you know, they didn't want anything to do with me. Um, but when I was single and made a conscious decision, when I became single in my late 40s, I thought, all right, if I'm going to do anything different, I got to become a better picker. I've got to pick a, a different kind of woman and I got to become a better ender. And, and I soon found that being a good ender can cover a multitude of sins of being a bad picker. If you can end things in a timely judicious way, you move on quickly and you don't kind of go down that rabbit hole with somebody that's not a good match. And, and the paradox for me is that as I became a better ender and dating a lot of women over you know, a period of about 12 years or so, uh, some, you know, a few dates, some a few weeks, some a few months, uh, you know, a couple for a few years. That when I became a better ender, i.e. doing it in a timely way, doing it in a loving way, not putting it off. Almost all of these women kept thinking I was a good guy after I broke up with them and, and stayed on friendly terms with me. Um, and so the, the paradox is that actually breaking up with a woman doesn't tend to destroy them or make them think you're a bad man. If you actually do it in a timely way and, and, and are loving and clear and direct about it, um, most people handle it well and move on and, and, and are grateful for the time they had with you and don't carry negative stuff. It's when we let things drag on way too long and we start getting resentful, passive aggressive, indirect, avoidant, uh, actually aggressive. That's when we do a lot of damage and, and it tends to linger, you know, for people for quite some time afterwards. Mm. What, that, what an interesting paradox. I also wanted to share just in my experience, I have a lot of people who come to me with a lot of personal issues and I share with them what I can offer as a coach. And they say, wow, this is exactly what I need, but I can't move forward. And I say, why not? And they say, oh, well, I already currently have a therapist or a coach. And I say, great, well, what's wrong? And they say, oh, they don't get me. They do phone calls. I hear them eating potato chips in the background. <laughs> with them for years and, it does, and they're just not a good fit. They don't respond to my emails. And I said, well, I think maybe you should consider moving on to someone who's a better fit. And because they're afraid to hurt that person's feelings, yeah. or something, <laughs> they don't take care of their own lives. I, I've seen that a lot. And like I said, I, 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 I was in private practice as a therapist for over 25 years. Uh, I'm going to quit eating potato chips during sessions now, now that I've heard yeah. people respond to that badly. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, when I was leading men's groups, um, at one time I was leading five men's groups a week. And, you know, the guys would make an eight-week commitment to start the group. And then after that, they could stay long-term. All I asked was just give me a two-week notice, you know, when you're ready to leave the group. And even just in groups, men had a hard time ending that. Um, and often they would just like not show up for a week or two or send me an email after missing two or three weeks or yeah. just put a payment in the mail. And it's even still that thing that men, well, mainly since I work with men, it's like they're afraid people are going to be upset with them if they leave the group or challenge them or 
you know, have a negative reaction. So yeah, even in these kind of social or professional type settings, not even just intimate settings, it, it can be really challenging to be a good ender to, to say, okay, it's not meeting my needs anymore, or my life circumstances have changed, or I'm bored, or you know, I want to do something else instead, and just you know, be upfront about it and say, so I'm in two weeks, it'll be my last group. You know, that that was like, you know, even after guys would be in group for long periods of time and you hope they've learned a lot of skills, still being that good ender seems like just one of the most elusive skills there is to, to learn and practice well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So becoming a better ender, uh, you mentioned another concept earlier in passing, and I'd like to get into that in a little bit more detail, which you talk about in your book, which is covert contracts, what those are, why nice guys do them, and what happens when that plays out. Yeah, you know, a lot of people have told me that's kind of one of the key takeaways that they've gotten from the book is the covert contracts. And, and yeah. it's helped me a lot. And it, it helps me really see when I've slipped back into my own nice guy patterns. And that, that still happens. And um, so basically, the nice guy has three fundamental covert contracts. And all of them are an if-then proposition. And they all involve giving to get. Um, and as the term says, they're covert or unconscious. Often, sometimes nice guys are aware of them, but often they operate at a very unconscious level. And nobody else knows that the contract exists, right? But the nice guy acts as if everybody should know that they exist, um, including God. And so covert contract number one is that if I'm a good guy, then I will be liked and loved. And so, so nice guys think, you know, if I'm, if I'm a good guy, if I'm out there, you know, um, living right, not being a bad man, being different from the jerks, being different from dad, giving people what I think they want to get, uh, I, I will be liked and loved. And throw into that, and the people I sexually desire will sexually desire me back. This is the nice guy's number one sexual seduction strategy. I'll be a good guy and then women will like me and want to get naked with me. But all the while be in their minds while well, being a good guy means, Oh, I have to be different from other men and I better hide my sexual agenda because women might respond negatively to that. And I'll listen to them talk about their problems a lot and, and I'll, I'll, I'll pay off their car for them and I'll help them move and I'll take them places. You know, all that nice guy seduction giving to get, but, but the thing is, that doesn't actually make people like you and it doesn't make women want to get naked with you. But the nice guy thinks it should. And when it doesn't work, they just try more and then often get really resentful. You know, why, why don't women like me? How come women don't want to have sex with me? How come women aren't attracted to me and blame the women rather than recognizing that covert contract of giving to get and being passively pleasing doesn't make people like you and doesn't turn women on. So there's, there's a core flaw in covert contract number one. And, and two, nobody else knows the contract exists once again. Yeah. So just being a good guy doesn't make people like you. Um, being authentic makes you much more attractive. I'm, I'm in a men's program myself. Um, and the leader, this is my second year in it, and the, the leader has done an exercise a couple of times. That, and I've done similar things like it you know in, in groups and, and with clients but one of the things we do probably the most powerful thing we do all year in this program and, and we just finished it up we had to record a video to post for group members to see of like 30 to 60 seconds of just saying what i don't want you to know about me and and these are so powerfully moving of guys sharing you know their their secrets their dark side the things they've, they've messed up the things they carry shame about yeah. And what is so interesting that as I've been watching these videos over the last week or two, as guys are posting them, and there's a lot of guys in the program, there's like 50 guys in the program this year. So I'm still getting to know some of them. And some of them, I just kind of know them as a face and a name. But when they post these videos, I go, I like that guy. I trust that guy. I can relate to that guy. As they're sharing their deepest, darkest shit that they don't really want anybody to know about. I go, yeah, I, I, I can relate to him. I've done that. Yeah. Oh, he seems real now. You know, I, yes. I can connect and, with him. And that attracts women when men are like that openly too. When we are real and authentic, it is the most attractive thing we can do. Uh, for, for women, for, for, for the, I'll just say for the feminine in general, for attracting all the goodies in life, being real and authentic. 
um, and just to kind of diverge a little bit, um, sure. you know, I, I've worked with men around dating for, for several years as well, once I learned how to date after I became single. And, um, and my, my core premise is not, that number one thing, you have to be yourself. You know, if you can go learn these pickup routines and canned pickup lines and poll questions and, you know, hypnosis and trip parlor tricks or whatever. Um, and, and, and I tell guys, that just makes you a geek with techniques. It doesn't make you on a, a, an authentic, real person. And the response that I get from every kind of historically bad dater that I work with is, well, you know, me being me is attractive to women. How come women aren't attracted to me? And I go, probably because you've never let them see the real you. Yeah. You know, ever since you were been a kid, you've been hiding things about you you don't want people to see. You've been trying to be what other people, what you think people want you to be. You've probably never let you see the real you. And so you being authentic is the number one turn on for people in general, yeah. um, whether it's just personal connection or, or physical sexual attraction. So there's covert contract number one. If I'm a good guy, I'll be liked and loved. And the women I want to have sex with will want to have sex with me. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm being very male specific, heterosexual, but apply it to however it works. Yep. Covert contract number two. If I meet everyone else's needs without them having to ask, then they will meet my needs without me having to ask. Mm. Now there's, a lot of core problems with this. Once again, nobody knows the contract exists. And yeah. nice guys always think we've got the scoreboard in our living room. Yeah, you know, we were, we're keeping score. I've, I've gave this, I did this for them. I, I sacrificed this. I took time to do that. And chink, 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 look at the score. And they don't do anything back for me. They don't say thank you. They don't appreciate me. They don't want to sleep with me. They yell at me. They criticize me. You know, I look at the scoreboard, you know, that's not fair. And that's where often our resentments and rage and passive aggressiveness and victim pukes all build up is that we're giving to get. And usually the thing we want most is, is appreciation and validation. Oh, you're such a great guy. Oh, thank you so much. Or, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, and, and bottom line is usually we want people to like us and want to have sex with us. But that, so that, that giving to get. Now, the thing is, nice guys often give what we think people need. We give what we want to give them to feel valuable. And oftentimes we're giving them things that, that they don't need. Often they're not broken. They don't have a problem that we need to solve for them. Mm -hmm. And if we don't ask people for what we want, how can they even know what our needs and wants are? But we think, well, I read their mind and I, I gave them this before they ever asked. They should read my mind and, and give to me. But again, most people aren't mind readers and how are they going to know what we need or yeah. And then throw into the mix, in general, nice guys are terrible receivers. It makes us really uncomfortable to receive. It triggers like this shame or guilt that I'm bad or I'm going to be in trouble or I'm going to owe somebody something. And every, every woman I've ever been in a relationship with has told me, Robert, you're really difficult to give to. You know, not, not only just like day-to-day -day stuff, but like, you know, gifts or things like that. I'm, I'm difficult to give to mainly because historically I was a terrible receiver. I've actually worked on that for many, many years and worked at both giving to myself, asking for what I want and practicing what people give to me. Now, before we started recording, you shared some things with me, some appreciation for my book and how it changed your life. Used to be, I would just go, oh yeah, okay, thanks, thanks, thanks. Now I really listen. I really receive that kind of information and, and it was meaningful to me that you shared it with me. And, and, and it was meaningful to, sorry to interrupt. I just want to say it's meaningful to me that you received that. I noticed that and I felt that. Yeah. And I've had to work at that. I mean, for, for the past, I was, okay, thanks. Sure, sure. Uh, um, so that's a covert contract number two. If I meet everybody else's needs without them having to ask, then they will meet my needs without me having to ask. Mm -hmm. Covert contract number three is that if I do everything right, then I will have a smooth, problem-free life. Now, there's a few flaws in this one as well. One is, I mean, what is the rule book for doing everything right? I, I know there's been a few published and have been, you know, endured for a couple centuries or more. But even in all those rule books, they say nobody actually attains perfection. Right? Right. It doesn't happen. But the nice guy thinks if I do everything right, and again, we're the scorekeeper. Hey, I do everything right. And, and one of the things I've said, often said that 
the nice guy mantra is that at first you don't succeed, hide the evidence. We hide all these things about ourselves and we compartmentalize it. Well, if nobody sees it, I'm a good guy. Um, right. but, but often, as I said, we're, we're not always all that nice. Yeah. But we think, okay, if I do everything right, then I'll have a smooth, problem-free life. You know, uh, women will be attracted to me. The woman I have will never complain, never be unhappy with me. My boss will always be happy with the work I do. I'll get every job I interview for. You know, I'll never have problems. But life isn't like that. Life is chaotic by nature. It's not smooth and problem-free. But the nice guy really does live in this kind of Peter Panish childish immature view if i line up all the ones and zeros if i get you know everything you know exactly right every the machine should always work exactly as i thought it would and life doesn't work that way and again that leads to a lot of the resentment and and rage and passive aggressiveness that nice guys tend to have i've done it right i've been the good guy i've been the good man that all the women said they wanted how come they they now don't want me or how can they tell me, oh, some lucky woman, you'll be so lucky to have you someday. But why doesn't she want me, right? Yeah. Why does my wife get angry at me? Why doesn't she want to have sex with me? Why does she criticize me? Why, you know, I do this one day and it's okay, and the next day it's not. You know, we, we want this plan that makes everything smooth and problem-free. And that just doesn't exist. So it's our covert contracts that actually prevent us from being authentic selves, that prevent us from getting our needs met, that prevent us from dealing with, with just the, the ever-changing, you know, chaos of life. Um, and, and they often, as I said, lead to us being inauthentic, dishonest, um, unavailable, guarded, passive-aggressive, and, and even out-and-out out rageful and angry. Um, even though we nice guys think, I can't get angry, uh, we often are very angry. And yeah. so these are a lot of the things that contribute to us, not only not having what we want in life, but also pushing other people away and, and not, which then of course gets in the way again of getting what we want in life. Mm, wow. Three, three powerful covert contracts for all you listeners to maybe rewind or re write those down. That's powerful stuff. Um, you mentioned victim pukes and I want to, I want you to define that. <laughs> I loved that when I read the book and I want the listeners to know what that means. But first, just on the concept, the topic of being a victim, one of the most powerful um, pieces of advice that I took away from your book was being in a relationship where I wasn't getting my needs met and feeling like I was with the wrong partner and putting so much blame on them yeah. and saying, oh, you're not meeting my needs. And through your book, this, the concept of co-creation really stood out to me. And, and going from being victim and blaming my partner, you're, doing, you're not meeting my needs, to how did I co-create this? Why did I co-create this? How can I thank my partner for being my partner in recovery, a healing partner, which is where we're at now, and it's amazing. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what it means to co-create and accept responsibility for what you have rather than play victim and then victim pukes. After. Okay. Well, let me start with victim pukes and then, and then okay. cause that's, a, that's a, the easier answer. And then, then we'll, we'll dive a little bit more into the systemic dynamic of relationships. Yeah. Um, the, the, I have to give credit to my second wife. She's the one that came up with the term victim puke and because she was applying it to me. <laughs> you know, here, here I was, again, thinking I was such a nice guy. I'm raising her kids. I'm treating her well. You know, all the things I thought in my covert contracts made me a good guy. And, um, and, and she was a very wounded woman. Uh, she had, I mean, she was an amazing woman in many ways. I was attracted to her for many, many reasons. Unfortunately, the good parts about her only showed up a little bit at the time. And, and the worst parts that I thought we could work through, you know, kept growing and growing and growing over time. Well, all my giving to get my covert contracts, um, you know, would build up kind of like a pressure cooker. And, and then, you know, just finally, you know, the, 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 you know, the straw that broke the camel's back or whatever, one little thing would happen, often very inconsequential. And, and I would just, I'd blow up and like, I'd, I'd just rehash everything she'd ever done, every resentment I'd been building, you know, just, you know, you know, this might be months or years worth of just, you know, puke that would just come out all at once. And often, you know, my then wife, but this has happened in other relationships, would just be like totally caught off guard, totally, you know, what the, you know, is happening here? And, and I even remember her asking me at times, she said, 
you know, after like I'd victim puked all this stuff out and, and not very nice. And she'd say, how long have you had all that stuff in your head? And I'd go six months, year. She go, it never dawned on you that maybe you should talk to me about that stuff. And I go, no, actually not. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to bring it up because I, I thought you might get upset at me. Right. So I just, I would keep it all in. And, and she used to tell me, and this is what she told me when she said, you got to get into therapy. You know, that's about, like I said, two years into our marriage um, or I'm not going to stay. And, and she said, I'd rather be with an asshole. She says, you know, you're such a nice guy. Everybody thinks you're a great guy, but you can be so hurtful to me and so mean. She said, I'd rather be with an asshole. At least you know how the asshole's going to treat you. With the, with the nice guy, you know, you treat me nice, you treat me nice, you treat me nice, and then all of a sudden when I'm not expecting it, you do something really hurtful to me. So that was, she, she termed victim pukes, and it just was so appropriate, you know, I've, I've, I've had to keep using it, because, you know, even when I said it, you were nodding, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yep. So, relationships. Um, my, my, my training, my doctorate is in marriage and family therapy, and so I'm a systems-trained therapist. So I'm trained to look in turn, trained to look at as at relationships, whether it be, you know, couples or families or even business, any kind of systemic dynamic to begin looking, why does the system exist in the way that it does? Not like, oh, it's that person's fault. That person's an addict. That's why the system works the way it does. Right. Or, you know, that person doesn't want to have sex. That's what, and, and begin to look systemically. And, and I've, I've tried to help clients do this through, through the years. And I actually have an online class that I put together a few years ago called All the Way In. And the book, I mean, this got eight lessons to it. And the first lesson is actually about, you know, why you and your partner co-created the system that you have. And the, my basic premise is every relationship as adults we co-create because they, they play some role. They're often at a very unconscious level. Um, I can't remember who said this, but if somebody wrote a book on codependency, um, and I read this years ago, they said, we tend to be attracted to people who have some of the worst traits of both of our parents. Mm. Meaning when we get into intimate relationships, we're bringing this, as I've already mentioned, this unconscious stuff from childhood of, you know, dad was angry and critical. So we learned how to try to manage that as a kid. Um, mom was depressed and, and kind of needy. And we learned how to manage that as a kid. I'm, I'm telling my, my, my family story. Um, and so, and so as, as an adult, I unconsciously am attracted to people that are, you know, maybe this angry, unpredictable, and maybe kind of moody and needy. Um, and uh, for example, one of the things that I've said is I'm amazingly attracted to unhappily married women. And it makes perfect sense. My first love object was an unhappily married woman. My mother, amazingly unhappily married to my dad for 60-something years until he died 10 years ago. Um, and, and so I, I was trying to be the good man, trying to you know, get her to choose me, choose me. I'm the good man as, as a little child. And little children do that. And so when I meet women that are unhappy in a relationship or even just complaining about past relationships, it's an amazing turn on for me. Now, it's really sick. But it's an amazing turn on. I've learned to be the observer of that because getting involved with either unhappily married women or women that are just leaving a bad relationship or women who are still telling stories about their crummy exes is not a good relationship strategy from a conscious point of view. Unconsciously, oh man, I'm, I'm in my element. I can fix that. I can be the good man. Uh, she'll choose me. She'll love me for being different than those, than those guys. And it doesn't work. But realize the person you get with is also attracted to you because you have some of the worst traits of both of her parents. Right. right? Yeah. And this, like I said, these are matches made in heaven or hell, whichever way we want to look at it. <laughs> so what happens for most people, and, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, and I've watched it for years and years and years as a therapist, is, of course, when, when we get with somebody, and then over time, we're not happy. Right. with X, Y, or Z. And we usually say, well, it's because of X, Y, or Z. It's these things that I'm not happy with this person. And then we focus either on trying to change them, um, uh, withdraw from them, move on to the next person that doesn't have those traits, all the while realizing we picked them because of those traits. Yeah. Right? And what I tell people, and like I said, in that class I've told you about, 
I tell people, if we can actually say, okay, why was I attracted to this person? Why have I stayed with this person, even with these things about them that I don't like? And maybe it's those very things that, that unconsciously attracted me to them. Yeah. And if we can actually start saying, what, what story is this relationship telling me about me? And what story is this relationship telling me about my partner? We can then use the relationship and the dynamic that each person brings, if we're conscious, to actually get in touch with, address, and maybe work through those early childhood dynamics. Now, it takes some love to do that. It takes some trust to do that. It usually takes help to do it. Trying to do it on your own can be pretty challenging because we often can't see our way out of our own paradigms and, and our own co-created messes that we make. But right. I've been saying for years that if you approach relationship consciously, that they are amazingly powerful personal growth machines. Now, I, I, since, again, I'm primarily working with men these days, I tell men, but it's true for women, but I tell men, everything your male brain thinks that a woman can do for you is wrong. She can't. And I, but I tell women the same thing. Everything your female brain says a guy is going to do for you and do for your life, it's wrong as well. He won't. Right? But what these people will do for us is wake us up if, if we're willing to be woken up and maybe be a big stick upside the head and yeah. say, okay, what do I need to learn in this relationship? And, how, and what can I help my partner learn? Through the relationship as well and if there's if there's if, if there's a you know a degree of love there a degree of respect a degree of trust a degree of willingness to be vulnerable and and to be afraid and be challenged and to do some hard work and ask for help um our partner is never going to be whatever we think you know they're going to be they're just not they're yeah. not um but um you know, I keep going back. I'm on my third marriage. I keep going back to relationships. I've bumbled my way through every relationship I've had, but I've grown in every single one of them in you in very unique ways. Because uh, beginning in about my early 30s, I decided I'm going to grow based on the challenges of relationship rather than just hunker down and be bitter about the way my partner challenges me. And so that's why I'm still I'm in a men's program. I've got a coach. Um, my, my wife challenges me in her own unique ways. Um, and I still am grateful for her every day that she does because the way she challenges me is telling my old story and, yeah. it, and it lets me keep working on it. And, you yeah. know, I love her to death and she loves me to death and we're both willing to work on the stuff. And so we keep doing that. We keep working on it and, you know, probably we'll keep working on it for a long, long time, but that's okay. Yeah, that, that's great. And, and you know, I, I actually want to flip over to a question from one of our listeners. We had some people submit questions. And this one stood out to me in particular from a gentleman named Andy in New Jersey. And he said, uh, I looked into the Goodreads book reviews for Dr. Glover's book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. Tons of people triggered and taking things far out of context into their unfulfillment. Clearly he has some ideas that, or he has ideas that some consider dangerous. And in my experience of recommending <laughs> your book, it, it, it stirs up a lot of unconsciousness in people. And rather than face their issues of being a nice guy or a nice girl, they look to blame your book in, in those ways you were kind of talking about how feminism went too far back in the sixties. And I thought that was really curious. And how do you, either interpret that to help people understand what this book really is about. Because as I've just said, I'm not going to let my confuse my stories with what this book really is. I've deeply changed in such an amazing way. And then if you have people who come to you, either feminine men or masculine women or anything, how do you kind of work through that and help them realize that this is usually a story about them and not what you've put together? You know, I, even though I make my living on, on the internet nowadays, um, I, I, I don't spend a lot of time on the internet reading shit that people write. Um, and what's interesting is when, the, when No More Mr. Nice Guy was published back in 2003, it was published by Barnes & Noble, who had a, a brief stint in the publishing uh, business and yeah. recently filed for bankruptcy. But anyway, um, the the publishers hoped there would be 
some pushback, some, some negative blowback, some resistance. Yeah. Um, and there never was. <laughs> they, they hoped that, oh, that'll stir up, you know, it's, you know, that kind of stuff stirs up, you know, attention for something. There never was. And, and I can, you know, honestly, the book's been out 17 plus years. And maybe in that 17 years, I'd say I haven't gotten over a dozen critical emails in that entire time. And I get more critical emails from men than women. You know, I, 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 I read it periodically. I actually went back to New York two years ago to, to read it, to, to, do, to redo the auto, audible version of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading it again and thinking, you know, I, I, I still like it. There's a lot of good stuff in there. And it is completely and totally non-offensive. It yeah. talks to men about being honest and authentic and transparent and loving and making their needs a priority and not, and not being passive aggressive and hurtful and, and inauthentic and lying. And so there's really nothing in there that is actually, you know, but what happens the few, the few negative responses I've got, um, the ones that come from men have been stuff like, oh, you know, my, my single mother did an amazing job raising me. You know, you say in the book that a single mother, you know, in, in spite of her best intentions, cannot raise a son into masculine completeness. He needs a man in his life. He needs men. He goes, my mother did an amazing job. How dare you say my mother, blah, blah, blah. Okay, okay. <laughs> you kind of grabbed one little thing and, and, and it, it triggered your stuff, right? Um, and... I've gotten maybe four or five emails from women that basically said, you know, your husband, my husband read your book and now he's using it as an excuse to kick me to the curb and blah, blah, now he's not being a nice guy, blah, blah, blah. And a few, few emails from women that obviously have not read the book, but just reacted to the title of it, you know, know, teaching men to be not nice. And, you know, the, the title actually, I think is one of the coolest parts of the book because it's, it does create that kind of, cognitive dissonance. Well, why would you write a book teaching men to be not nice? Um, and, you know, I quickly deal with that if you actually open it and read it. Sure. Um, and so I've actually gotten very, very little negative blowback. Now, I get that people are going to react and, and the internet is a fucking wasteland of people <laughs> offering whatever their opinion is. That's why I don't listen to talk radio and it's why I don't read forums on the internet. I did happen to look at some of the reviews of No More Mr. Nice Guy on Amazon about six or eight months ago. And, and, and I think because we're, we were kind of repositioning a few things and the reviews, you know, it, it's got like a four and a half star rating out of five stars. And the majority of the reviews are four and five stars. And there's a few one star responses. So that intrigued me. All right. What are the one star responses? Mm-hmm. And one of them is, well, basically said, you know, he, he just says, don't be a pushover. He had to write a whole book to tell people don't be a pushover. Okay. You know, that's one, that's a one star response. One of the person, and this one is the one I got the, the biggest kick out of. Um, about two years ago, uh, I was really sick. And for about three months, didn't know what was wrong. I went to a lot of doctors here in Mexico, in the, in the States. Come to find out I had a tumor blocking my small intestine. I lost over 30 pounds. Uh, I was just, you know, had no energy. I, I, was, I was a mess and didn't know what was wrong with me. And finally, a doctor here in Mexico ran the right test, found the tumor, uh, said, we got to do surgery right now. This could rupture your, your small intestine. Um, and so went in and did surgery, and I, I've been amazing ever since. No problems. Gained the weight back, blah, blah, blah. Well, my publisher put out, a re- not a revised edition, but kind of a cleaned up edition of No More Mr. Nice Guy, meaning they corrected a few typos, and I wrote a, a, a preface for it. Right. But also, they put a new cover on it, and and... Uh, they wanted a current picture of me. So um, I had a picture taken, but it was during that time that I was sick. And I can look at the picture and, and I can see in my eyes that something's not right, right? I can see it now in hindsight. I know what was wrong with me. I was dying, right? Yeah. And, but that, that picture is on the back. And, and one of the Amazon reviews says, just look at the picture of this guy on the book. He's, <laughs> you know, he says, you know, I can't remember what they said, but you know, I, that guy's weird looking. I wouldn't trust him. I wouldn't buy that book. And I'm going, what the fuck? You know, people, people are not buying a book because, you know, I didn't even know I was dying at the time the picture was taken, but you can see that they're, I mean, energetically, I can see, right. I didn't, I, I didn't look like me. I, uh, and, you know, I don't love the picture, but I've, I've kept it because it, it did reflect 
a me at that point in time. So if that's what people react to, if that's, if that's the blowback of, you know, how I look in the picture, oh, okay, I'm not going to lose sleep over it, I promise you. So the bottom line is, I've not got a, a lot of negative blowback. And, you know, I, I still kind of keep waiting for it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's become a little bit touchy nowadays to talk about masculine, feminine, to talk about right. male roles, feminine roles. Right. Um, you know, jo Jordan Peterson has been quite the lightning rod for that. Um, yep. You know, and, and, and he's, he's gotten a lot of that negative blowback and, and, and message. Um, somehow I've been under the radar with it. Maybe my time just hasn't come yet. But my, again, my basic, I, I just don't fucking read stuff on the internet. Um, I, I even on my blog, I put where people can't even make comments on it because either people spammers would put stuff like, you know, you know, learn how to do this blah, blah or people, you know, they, they'd either, they, I got good posts, but a lot of them is just like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I Go for you. And, and, and now you've had this opportunity to publicly clear the air about the picture where you look creepy and low energy. I look <laughs> that... creepy and low energy. I was, I was dying. I was fucking dying. <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh, no, that's right. not a bad picture. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, no, this, is, this has been fantastic. Just continuing to reaffirm everything that I've learned from you and that I believe this book is uh, really a game changer. Like really guys like get out there. No more Mr. Nice guy, Dr. Glover, if you could kind of leave the audience, if, if this resonated with listeners, which I'm sure it, it hit every listener in some way, um, obviously we're going to put the link to get the book, but in addition to reading your book, what piece of advice or next step would you give listeners who want to explore this more and realize, Hmm, how could I maybe be a little bit less of a nice guy or nice gal? and get what I want in life. Okay. Well, well, of course I could do the plug that they can, you know, go find me at my website, drglover.com. Yep. Um, and I've, I've got online classes, podcasts, workshops, seminars, um, buy the book, of course, go buy the book. Um, and, you know, buy, buy the ebook, buy the print version, buy the audible version, go buy them all. Um, so, but, but just seriously, the, the thing that I tell people in the beginning of the book, and I've been saying this for years is don't try to go it alone. Um, a lot of times, you know, nowadays self-help is big business and, and people read books or they'll go to a workshop, um, you know, or, or watch YouTube videos or whatever. And we're kind of, we're all doing our self-help sitting at home, you know, by yourself, you know, reading or listening or watching videos. And that's all good. There's a lot of good information out there and, and I, I'm supportive of that. But to truly make a transition of becoming aware of our covert contracts and moving beyond them of, of getting a validation that, that we're lovable, we're worthwhile. We don't have to try to become something. We don't have to pretend to be something. We don't have to hide anything to learn to release our toxic shame, which we haven't even really touched on at all yeah. um, to, to learn to get your needs met in a healthy way um, to, to, co-create healthy systems with people that do help you get your needs met. All of that requires assistance, um, whether that's with a coach, a men's group, a 12-step group, a couple's therapist. Um, don't try to do it alone. That's, that's my primary piece of advice. Um, trying to do it alone is actually just continuing a, a real strong, nice guy pattern. I'll figure it out. And because I don't want, I don't want to risk. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to be seen. I don't want people to know blah, blah, blah. No, go be seen, go be known, go, go take risks, go be vulnerable, go get out of your comfort zone. That's where the growth occurs. And that doesn't usually happen alone. Yeah. That's really well said. Don't try to do this work by yourself, get help. And out of that fear of being seen or exposed, you will actually draw a lot of people close to you and get that yeah. acceptance that you crave the most. And that's why you're hiding anyway. <laughs> exactly. So. It's, you know, as I said, I'm, I, I've been working on my nice guy issues for over 25 years. I've written a book about it. I've worked with thousands of nice guys. I'm, I'm 63. I'm in my third marriage and I still have a coach and I'm still in a men's program. Um, it, I, I hope I'll keep, you know, growing and, and understanding this stuff. And I'm still learning how, how to be, you know, how to interact socially, how to connect, how to be real, how to be vulnerable, um, how to put my walls down, how to let my defenses go. I'm still learning that stuff. Yeah. 
Amazing. Well, uh, last question. You already touched on this a little bit, but uh, for the listeners who want more information specifically on you, we'll get this all in the show notes, but okay. say your website one more time. And if you want to talk a little bit about your different courses, which one you recommend for beginners for, you know, just talk a little bit about your programs and what's best for people who are listening and want more. Sure. Well, my, my primary website is drglover.com. That's D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com. If you Google No More Mr. Nice Guy, if you Google Robert Glover, I come up in the top several spaces on both of those searches. Um, I do have an online university with self-help courses, but you do them with people. Um, and, and I have relationship courses. I have um, programs for single men. Uh, I've recently um, just published another new book called Dating Essentials for Men. Uh, you can find that on Amazon and uh, uh, have a new website to go with that dating essentials for men.com. So for single guys, um, they go, go look at that material. Uh, I, I do workshops and seminars and I do some consultation, not a lot these days, but all that information is at drglover.com. Awesome. Dr. Robert Glover, author of No More Mr. Nice Guy. It's such an honor to have you on my show based on how much you've personally impacted my life. I'm so excited to publish this one. Thank you again so much for your time. Brendan, thank you. I enjoyed it. <laughs>